0: All right. Well, I'm excited about uh, our opportunity to be in the, in the Word together. Um, Scott asked me to preach a little while ago, and uh, I'm always glad for a chance to do that. We're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter number four. So if you want, you can start heading uh, that direction. What I'd, what I'd like to do today is is really an attempt to complement uh, some of Scott's messages lately uh, from from James 1. Um, some of that was really part of uh, his own encouragement to me. Uh, some of that was the providence that today is a Sunday um, marked off kind of in, in American evangelicalism as Orphan Sunday. There's even a thing in the bulletin, um, kind of a prayer for Orphan Sunday in there, um, and that that is today. Um, so the combination of Scott's encouragement to me, where we are with uh, Orphan Sunday, um, where we are in the book of James one and really a personal passion for me have kind of have led me to Galatians chapter number four and the message I'd like to preach to you today. Um, in our in our children's ministry, we say there's two pillars of everything that we're trying to do. There there are two things that we're trying to accomplish in our children's ministry two two pillars and they're to teach the character of God and the gospel. And those two things inform all of our lessons and all of our teaching. It's, it's about the character of God, and it's about the gospel. And, and I'm convinced that those two great motivators ought to drive all of our behavior. Who God is and the gospel that he's revealed, those are the things that motivate us, that, that push us. And really, the gospel, the second of those two, is just an outflow of the first. If you want to see who God is, if you want to see his character on display, then the best place to look is to the gospel. You want to know who God is, you'll see it in his plan of redemption. So the revelation of God's character um, really comes to us in its fullness and in, and in its clarity in the gospel. And so today I'd like to encourage you in the gospel message, and I'd also like to, to motivate you with the gospel, if I can. Um, I'd like to ask you this morning, even in the context of having um, Scott preaching from James 1, uh, talking about pure religion, undefiled, um, is to care for widows and for orphans and their, their affliction, I'd like to ask you, why do you care about widows and orphans? I'm asking a, I'm asking a motivation question. What, why? What, what is it, if, you, if your heart's even been responding in the last couple of weeks to Scott's message, what is it that's, that's welling up within you that says, I, I do care about this, this, this matters to me? And, and has that happened to you, I guess, is another question. Have you felt the pull from that passage? Have you, have your, have you felt your heart pulled in the last two weeks, as Scott's been talking about pure religion? And, and what is it that's driving you to say, I, I care about things like orphans and I care about widows? Because I'm convinced that if our discussion of widows and orphans is just kind of a hot-button social issue, then our care is going to wane when our society's care starts to wane. If, if, it's, if that's what's motivating us, well, it's a, it's a hot-button issue. Then when it stops being a hot-button issue, then we, we stop caring. If, uh, if our concern is just because we want to feel selfless and we want that feeling that comes with, I'm a, I'm a giving kind of generous people that cares about others, then we're going to stop caring when that caring feels less and less personally satisfying because we were just in it for what it felt like to us anyway or if we care about orphans and widows because maybe we feel guilty Um, maybe maybe you feel guilty you're overwhelmed by the numbers and the needs and and maybe the preaching has made you feel like i'm not doing anything and i just feel guilty and i'm weighed down by that Uh, if that's our motivation then then our care will end when the guilt isn't as intense when, when we've kind of stopped thinking about it and when the pressure's kind of gone, we go, and it just becomes another maybe message that was in the past and our care for widows and orphans gets put on the back burner. What I'm convinced is that we need a much more permanent and lasting motivation to obey James one twenty seven than any of those lesser motivations. And today, what I want to do is focus your attention on gospel principles behind just one aspect of caring for widows and orphans. I want to I focus our attention. It's such a big subject, and I really want to zero us in on just one aspect of caring for orphans and their affliction, and that's specifically the aspect of adoption. I, what I want to happen today is for you to be motivated to care about adoption because you realize the significance of your own adoption. And this is how I think all of gospel living works. All of of our behavior, if it's going to stem from something that is lasting and is permanent, is going to have to come back to gospel principles that we're convinced of, okay, when it comes to forgiveness with one another. Why do we, what drives us to forgive one another? Well, what ought to be driving us is there's gospel principles behind there. When we say we should forgive as Christ has forgiven us, see, there's a gospel motivation for you to live out that behavior, all right? When, when John tells us we love, why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. That's, that's a gospel-informed behavior for us to love one another within our families, within our church family, within our community. What drives us to love? Well, if it's going to be something that's lasting, something that's permanent, it's going to have to be something that comes from the character of God and comes from the gospel. And so I think if we're going to be motivated to care about widows and orphans, and specifically, if we're going to be motivated to care about adoption, we're going to have to be aware that it comes from gospel principles. So I want to give you the gospel truth today that forms the backdrop for our interest in adoption. Okay, that's, that's my task today. And, and here's the gospel truth that I want to encourage you with today, and I want to motivate you with. Okay, here it is. Though we were slaves, God made us his sons. Okay, though we were slaves, God made us his sons. And in the end of the message, I hope you'll see that because God sent his son to make us his, we should love human adoption and imitate God's action. But that's only secondary. What is primary is God's adoption. So I want you to see from Galatians 4 that that though we were slaves, God made us his son. So let's read Galatians 4. We're going to read from verse number 1 down through verse number 7. Paul says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I know we're just jumping into Galatians 4, but let's just backpedal a little bit to remind ourselves what's going on in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is Paul's letter to this church at Galatia that was struggling with a major issue. And their major issue was a doctrinal one. The problem in the Galatian church wasn't primarily behavior, it was primarily doctrine. And, and so it's that one letter, and you probably know this about the book of Galatians, right? It's the one letter that Paul begins, and he doesn't offer a single word of, of, of thanksgiving or encouragement to the Galatian church. You, you probably know that about Galatians. Instead, he says hello and immediately jumps into, I am shocked. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you for a different gospel. The Galatian church was abandoning the gospel that they had originally heard from Paul. And what was it that they were abandoning it for? The the problem in the Galatian church is not that they said Jesus didn't live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, or be raised from the dead. They were affirming all those things. What they were saying is all those things are true, and you must keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. What was happening in Galatian church was faith plus works. And Paul says as soon as you do that, as soon as you add any kind of works to faith, then you have a false gospel. That's the point of the book of Galatians. And so he's been making this argument over and over again that the law is not what saves anybody. Instead, it's faith, and it's faith alone. All right? And so after telling them that they were moving to a different gospel in Galatians 1, 6 to 8, he moves on to to talk about the the priority of the gospel and not— um, and, and not the law. He talks about how he had to oppose um, Peter and others who were prioritizing behavior that matched the Mosaic law that wasn't in step with the gospel. He says in chapter 3, "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?' "'It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified.'" Then he asked them this, "'Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh?' He says, is that how it works? Salvation, is that how salvation works? You, 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 you begin by the Spirit, and then you add your works, and that's what makes you perfect. Paul says that's, that's deceptive. That's not true. That's, that's not how it is. So he's arguing for the, for the pure gospel. Um, he says it's not that the law is contrary to the promises of God, but the law could never give life. All right, And so that's to kind of zoom through Galatians 1, 2, and 3, and that lands us in Galatians chapter number 4. And in Galatians chapter number 4, I I really want you to see two points. We were slaves. God made us his. Okay, Paul's going to start out. His first point here is we were slaves. And he's going to make that point by giving a human illustration. And that's what you see in verse number 1. Here's the human illustration behind the spiritual point. We were slaves. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. When he says, I mean that, He's referencing, he's saying, he's referencing us back to the argument he had just been making in Galatians chapter 3. What did he say in the end of Galatians 3? Well, in Galatians 3.23, this is what Paul says. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All right, So Paul's painting this picture of under the law, we were captives and we were prisoners and we couldn't escape and, and, and all of that was just waiting until Christ came so that we can be justified and we could be justified by faith and not by our own obedience. And he goes on to say, there isn't any Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. You are Christ. And he says in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, how did, how did you become an heir of the grace of life? It happened by promise, not through law. Okay, And so in chapter 4, he's going to go ahead and not just use those words. He's not just going to use the word guardian in, in heir. He's actually going to paint out this human illustration. Okay, So that's what he's doing in verse 1. So what I mean, he says, he's going to paint the picture. He's going to fill out what he already said in chapter 3. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. All right? So you have an heir to this vast... Fortune or, or whatever it, whatever it is that, that he, he's an heir to. Um, but when he's a child, in reality, he doesn't function any different than a slave. Because this child, even though he is the owner of everything, verse 2 says, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Right, So we're not entirely sure if Paul is referencing kind of the Roman custom, Jewish custom, or even in the area of Galatia, they had their own kind of rules about how this worked when it came to being an heir. But, but the point is, if you have an heir, but he's a child, he hasn't been given his inheritance yet. And he has to still obey all of the rules and regulations that his father has said. His father is still in control of all of that. And so actually, it's not really that much different than being a slave because he still gets told where to go what to do. He doesn't get to use any of what will become his down the road. He, he doesn't have any of the benefits of what is to come later. That's the point, right? So he's an heir, but he's really no different than a slave because he, he still is, he's got these and Paul uses these words he 's under guardians and managers that 's how it would have worked in paul 's day you would You would have had many times they were actually slaves, but they were they would have been tutors and they would have instructed these children on all of the ways of politics and reading and writing and logic and all of these other things and These children went through gr- a grueling educational process as children that meant that they didn 't get to enjoy any of what would one day be theirs all right it 's a human illustration that paul 's making. And, and he's making, it, uh, making this human illustration to drive home the point that we were like slaves when we were under the law. All right, Paul wants us to get his illustration that shows us that we were slaves under the law. And so he says, verse number three, he's going to go from painting this human illustration to saying that's exactly how we were under the law. So look at verse three. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved. That's the main. If you want to boil those words down to what are what are the main words in that section, the main words are we were enslaved. Okay, that's those are the main words you got to focus on. We were enslaved. Paul says in the same way. All right, he's showing you. I gave you this illustration. In the same way, we were slaves. It was it was just like that. When he says we were slaves, um, I. When we were children we were enslaved, I, I think he's talking more generally not just about himself, but he's speaking even generationally, even about like Jewish people, all right? He's not just talking about when I was a child, I was enslaved. He's talking about them even as a nation or, or even the Gentiles. They were, there was the was slavery that happened, and he's going to compare children, that's what it was like to be under the law, with what it is to be full grown, which is to be under Christ, all right? So that's, that's the analogy that he's using. And that's emphatic. He says, but we were enslaved. What were we enslaved to? Well, what we were enslaved to uh, is the elementary principles of the world. And it's at this point that uh, I think one of the most difficult interpretive things in all of Galatians is in front of us. All right? What does it mean to say that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? What, what are the elementary principles of the world? Of the world that we were enslaved to, and there's a couple options. A lot of modern commentators have really taken that word "elementary," and 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 they've said that a, that that word really is referring to even kind of the, like the, the demonic spirits that, that the Galatians and, and and the Greeks and others would have been worshiping and following, and and so there is actually overtones of, of almost like a demonic following here. Um, I, don't think that's the, I don't think that's the best way to go um, because in Paul's day, they never used that word elementary to refer to demons and spirits. So it, doesn't, it didn't show up for another three centuries, to this, to, um, 300 years that they started using it. So I, d- I don't think that's really it. All right, well, well what is it? Well, Paul's going to use that same expression, enslaved to elementary principles of the world, in just a couple verses. Slip down in verse number eight. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? All right. Here's what I think is going on in this passage, and good people would disagree with this, and you might even disagree with this. But when it says the elementary principle of the world, I think Paul is trying to wrap up both Jew and Gentile and their basic religious principles. Okay? He's trying to talk to both groups at the same time. Because what, what you have going on is you have these, this Christian church in Galatia, and you have this Jewish influence that says you need to be Jewish. You need to believe in Jesus, and you need to do the works of the law. That's clearly what Paul has been saying throughout the book of Galatians. So why would he just abandon that now and be talking about a whole different religious subject? So I think he has to be talking about the Jews here. And at the same time, he's talking to Gentile people who have their own set of religious and philosophical guiding principles that are also contrary to the gospel, that are enslaving. All right? And it's because of these later verses that some people bring out this whole, uh, it says that by nature are not gods. Is he talking about demons or is he not? But, but notice he says you're enslaved to them, but, but what is it that they were, they were doing? What were, they, what were these weak and worthless principles whose slaves they want to be once more? Notice in verse 10, it's not, it's not gods or demons. What, what is it that they, that they want to keep doing? Verse 10 says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You see, he's talking about religious culture, things that Jewish people certainly would be doing. They were going to be observing all of their religious customs. They would be doing their Passover. They, they, would, be observe, they would be observing their Sabbaths. Okay? So when he says these are the things that you're, you want to be slave to, I think he's talking about both Jewish practice as well as Gentile practice. So when it says the elementary principles of the world, we hear that word world and we immediately think evil. I think probably most of you. Um, that word is actually a neutral word. It can just mean earthly. So he's talking about the earthly religious principles that are driving the Galatians, and, and whether Jew or Gentile, back into slavery. Okay? That's, that's what I'm arguing for. So what were we enslaved to? Well, we were enslaved, in reality, to our own sin. We were, we were enslaved to religious belief and practice that could never save us. We were slaves. Even even the Jewish people, even, even if they tried to keep the whole law, never could. It, it, it turned them into slaves. In fact, the law only showed them how sinful they really were. All right? The law came, and when that law came out, people went, Ooh, I don't want to do that. That was one group of people. That was one group of Jewish people. And all of you know what that is, Right? Because you have all seen the, you know, wet paint don't touch, and you went, ooh, I, I didn't really want to touch this bench, but now all of a sudden I do, because the sign says don't touch, right? You've had kids that you said, whatever you do, you can't have this candy, and that's the one thing they wanted, right? When there's a law, there's something inside us that goes, I want to disobey the law, right? It makes slaves out of us. And there was this group of people that said, there's this law, and I want to obey it, and so they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and they were frustrated because they couldn't do it, all right? The law makes slaves out of people because they, they, they either choose to rebel or they try to obey and find out that they can't, all right? Same thing with Gentile um, religious practice. They would be worshiping all types of different gods. They would, they would give up their lives for the gods of agriculture and the sun and the moon and the rain and everything else, and it would turn them into slaves, all right? Paul says, we were slaves, these earthly religious principles is, is, I think, the point that he's trying to make. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our reality pre-Christ enslaved children of wrath in john 6 jesus had a discussion with the jewish people and and this was interesting because some of these jews had believed in him and jesus said to them if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free right so he was presenting a message of gospel freedom and some of these jewish people went i don't i don't need to be free what do you mean free i am free uh, how dare you say that? They said, we're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? Is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Only Jesus Christ can make us free from our slavery to sin. There is no other religion or principles that can free you from the tyranny of sin. Nothing can free you from its power. Nothing can free you from, ultimately, its presence. Nothing can free you from the guilt of your sin except for Jesus Christ. You are guaranteed to be a slave to sin without Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers... To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that was you and that was me, right? We were blinded. We were unable to see the spiritual light. 1 Corinthians 2, a passage we've looked at in the past. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We were slaves who actually didn't have the ability to change our slavery, That's what we were. We were slaves. We couldn't have fixed our problem no matter how hard we tried. We were totally unable to rescue ourselves from our sin. It's not that we just didn't want to, it's we can't. We couldn't. We were slaves. Now, it 's hard for me to even imagine what it 's like to be in a culture where slavery is is practiced i the, just the thought of of belonging to somebody else i don 't know is it is it my Americanism is it my imagination i don 't know but the thought of not being free like to have to truly be a slave where someone tells you where to go and what to do and how to get up and what to wear and i mean everything else. We have it so good in our lives. You might say, hey, I have a boss that tells me what to do. That's nothing in comparison to slavery. You can change jobs, right? You're free. We have so much freedom, and we're so used to it. But think about a time when, when slavery was an integral part of the culture. And so when Paul says we were slaves, you had people that would be recoiling at that and going, I, that, is a, that is a horrific condition to be in, to be slaves. It's hard for me to even think about times in America, of all places, um, where where there was slavery being practiced. America, the place where people went to escape tyranny and oppression and said things like, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and this was a place that had the pr- active practice of slavery. Um, that's just a world that's beyond my ability to comprehend. So, so, and maybe it is for yours too. So I guess the only thing that I could think of that was anywhere close to that has been my experiences in the prison. I, I think prison is the one thing that you, you and I can relate to, since we can't really relate to slavery super well. We, we can relate to knowing what it's like to be uh, a prisoner. So, so the prisoners, they, they, don't, uh, they don't get to pick uh, what food they're going to eat that day. right? You walk through the line and you stick your plate out and whatever food they put on it, you're eating that. They don't even get to pick when they eat. They're told this is your eat time. They're told this is when you can go outside. This is when you have to stay in your cell. And you're stuck in this place until we choose to, to let you out. And the, something about the prison, part of the sadness that is there to, to go there is just to see people who, that, there's such a hopeless, despairing kind of place, especially when, um, like the prison that I, that, that I go to normally, you have so many lifers who are just, they're, they're there until they die. You're never going to see anything different than these, you know, these walls, same people, day in and day out, same routine. You're going to get up, you're going to get your two hours outside, you're going to go back to your cell, you're going to go out in the evening, you're going to get your two more hours, and just that same monotony in the routine, and, and so that in my mind is, is something that helps me connect to this idea of slavery, being told what to do and when to do it and how to do it, and it's repugnant, it's repulsive, like the thought of being stuck in prison to me is horrifying, and that's slavery, and I think Paul is trying to make the point that this is what we were like. We were slaves. So let me ask you, have you felt the, just the crushing burden of your sin and the slavery that is in your sin? Have you, have you felt that? Have you experienced it to say, my sin is overwhelming me. I can't change it. I can't fix it. It's making me guilty before God. I can't undo it. I can't get rid of it. I can't even stop doing it. I am I'm enslaved to my sin. Have you sensed your own inability to change that condition? Because I would urge you, if you haven't, then you probably haven't come to a proper grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Jesus is, is not just, you know, you were drowning and you were, you were floundering and you were trying to swim and there was a life raft and you swam over to it and you grabbed hold of it, right? The point is you were dead. Right? You were at the bottom. You were, you, were, you were drowned already. And Jesus came and rescued you. Didn't, you didn't reach your hand out to the life raft. Right, Jesus came and gave you life. You were unable to respond. Have you felt the weight of your sin? Have you felt that? Because what Paul says is we were slaves. We were no better than slaves. And if you have, if you have felt that and you have run to the gospel, then you know the encouragement of the second point of our message today. Because the first one is... We were slaves. But the second point is, God sent his son. And that is good news to your ears today if you know what it is to be a slave. Because look at verse number four. Again, to to boil it down to the most important words, they're in verse number four, but God sent forth his son. All right, so cut away all the other expressions. Not to, be a, not to be a word nerd or something, but you're just looking for the main subject and the main verb that will help you see the main point, right? You're going to find that in the main subject. Yeah, everyone on everyone, there. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot for the subject. All right, the main subject is God, and the verb is sent forth. That's the main point of verse number four. Who was it? It was God. And what did he do? He sent forth his son. And in that message, God sent forth his son. That is a gospel proclamation to you today. You are a slave, but God sent forth his son. Notice who takes the action there. It's God. God sent forth his son. He's the one who took the initiative, who took the action. What did he do? He sent forth, all right? That, that word sent forth uh, it's a great word. It's the same word used, for instance, in the Old Testament of Jacob sending his sons to Egypt to buy grain. He sent them forth on a mission. The early church uses this exact word to talk about sending out Paul and his missionary companions. It was this idea of sending forth. They would commission him and send him forth. That's what God did with his very own son. He sent him forth. He put him out on a mission. And who, who was it that God sent out? He sent out his own son. Jesus is the one who, who God declared at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, hear him. That's who God sent. You are a slave, I was a slave, and what God did was send his very own son to deal with that slavery. And this is good news for you, and it's good news for me, that God sent forth his very own son. Romans 8.3 tells us this. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right? The law couldn't save us. Nothing wrong with the law, it's just we couldn't obey it. But, but what did God do? Romans 8.3, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is gospel news for you today. You were a slave, but God sent forth. He commissioned his own son. Who did he send? His very own beloved. And so as we go through the second point, I'd like you to see five thrilling truths about God sending his son. All right, we said, first of all, you were slaves. Secondly, God sent his son. But notice there's a bunch of phrases all around God sent his son. And we're going to look at these phrases, and I think you're going to see five truths that ought to thrill our hearts about this gospel message that God sent his son. Okay? Five truths. The first one is, God sent his son at the right time. Notice, that's how verse 4 starts. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. All right? When the fullness of time had come. That's a thrilling truth, because God sent Jesus at just the right time. There's a lot of, uh, I've heard, preaching on this. I've read commentators on this. And, uh, and there's kind of a common theme that people would say, the fullness of time, it's because the earthly circumstances were just right. So the Roman Roman Empire had been expanding. It was the time of the Roman peace. There were roads. There was a governmental system. There was relative stability. There was mail. There were all these things. And so that's, that's part of what made it the, the fullness of time, is the human situation was good. Um, personally, I have a hard time believing that that's really what this means. I mean, haven't we kind of significantly improved on what the Roman Empire was doing in the time of Jesus? It wasn't actually a global empire. Um, there wasn't, you know, things like the Internet. They didn't have asphalt. I mean, if you're, if you're going to use that, you say the fullness of time means that, well, the earth was in a good it was in a good spot for this. Um, I don't think that's the best way to understand it. Um, certainly that could be, I guess, part of it. But I really think the fullness of time is theological. It's, it's a divine commentary. It was just the right time from God's vantage point. The fullness of the time had come. So with all of the preceding history, with everything we read in the Old Testament about redemptive history, even with the last 400 years of silence from Old Testament to New Testament, this was exactly the right time to send Jesus with all the history that was going to come after Jesus. God knew all of that. God knew how long he wanted for the church to be in existence before the return of Christ. He knew knew all of that. And when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, Jesus came. The coming of the Son was planned, and it was exact. It wasn't haphazard. I think that's encouraging to us. God sent his Son at the exact time he meant to. Jesus was aware of this sense of timing even in in Mark 1. um, Jesus was, um, after John was arrested rather, Jesus came into Galilee. He proclaimed the gospel of God and he said, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It was just the right time for this message to be preached. All right? The the arc of, of history was leading to this exact moment so all of, all of history before Christ was pointing us to him. All of history after him has been pointing us back to him. This is the apex of time, the fullness of time, from all the fullness of time from the past and everything will be in the future looking back at this exact right time. So, so when was it? Well, it's, it's thrilling that this is just the right time. God knew exactly when to send Jesus. All right, so he sent him at the right time, not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. God sent his son, but that's not the only thrilling truth. Notice that he sent them the, the right way says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Jesus, God sent Jesus in the right way, which was human. That's the right way for Jesus to come human. You say, born of woman. Ah, uh, how else does one get born? Um, well, it's just an expression. It's used throughout our Bibles. Uh, Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's a way of saying, it's a Jewish way of saying, human. Right The right way for Jesus to come was human. We needed him to be human if if the 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 heresies that sprung up in in the early church that said Jesus couldn't have been human, all right, those deny crucial doctrine that that God sent His Son, but he had to be human. He was born of woman all right and and that's thrilling to us because Jesus is a high priest who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. He had a body just like. You and I have. He knows what it feels like. In fact, you can trust him because he, he didn't come as, as some kind of lesser sacrifice. He actually came as a human sacrifice, and so he can be the sacrifice for you and for me because he's human. All right? So, Jesus came at just the right time. He also came in just the right way as a human. Notice, uh, it, it wasn't just in the sense of being human that was the right way to come. It was also that he was Jewish. All right? Because there's a second expression that comes right after this. It says, he was. Born of, a, born of a woman, and then born under the law. That's a way of saying Jesus was Jewish. All right? So he was human, and he was Jewish, and both those things were necessary for him to save us. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He was born under the law, and he obeyed every single bit of God's royal law. He had to be born under the law. He had to be Jewish. Could Jesus have been the Savior of the world if he had not been a Jew? And the answer is no. He had to be Jewish to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. So I, this is kind of a side note, I guess. But for the Christian, uh, being prejudiced against Jewish people makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So those who say Jew with a sneer on their lip cannot possibly know the Jew, the Jesus of the Bible. At the very least, they don't know him well. All right, you. You cannot be biblical and be anti-Jew. It's, it's just not possible. Um, there's kind of these circles today that are kind of in vogue today among, among evangelicals and some of them young evangelicals, and there's this tendency to be pro-Palestinian to the point of being anti-Jew, and that, I, that baffles me to no end. I, I cannot understand. Like Maybe I should be careful because I don't know where you are, where you all are. I, I mean, you read stuff today in popular magazines and stuff that are pro-Palestinian and whatnot and, and to the point of being anti-Jew. And I just think, what Bible are we reading to be anti-Jewish? Like, did we read our Old Testaments? Uh, did, do we know who Jesus was? Jesus was a Jewish man. And if it wasn't for that, he's not your Savior. We, have a, we ought to have a world of gratitude and respect um, for the Jewish people. Um, our entire belief system is based on on Jewish belief on the fact that God chose them to be His special people, and now we get to share in their blessings. We're the stepchild, <laughs> not them. We get to share in the blessings that come to Jewish people. So, um, at any rate, Jesus is—he came in the right way. He's human and he's and he's Jewish, but. Notice, uh, we're moving on, he came at the right time, he came in the right way, but notice that he came in order to redeem, and this is a thrilling truth. Jesus came on a mission of redemption. It says in verse 5, God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. He came to redeem those who, the law, the law had had its thumb on these people, and Jesus came to redeem them. And we were, we were redeemed with a price. We've been bought with a price, and it's not just any price. It wasn't the price of, of the blood of bulls and of goats. We're, re, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So it is a thrilling thing for us to read that we are redeemed. But Paul's going to put another statement. We could spend a lot of time talking about redemption. But notice he puts another statement right next to it. And, and this is where we get to um, our word adoption this morning. Notice that he says, God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as sons you see that you see that the purpose of god sending his son is adoption like that that was that was in god's mind when he sent his son his purpose was to adopt us as sons it's the esv i'm not totally thrilled with how it how it translates this because the reality is that that the expression in order to uh, to redeem those uh, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It makes it sound like we redeemed so that we could be adopted. You see that? So to redeem them so that we might receive. I think it's better to understand it's coming from God sent his son to receive us, to give us the adoption as sons. It connects to God sending his son. These are two purposes, two different purposes of God sending his son. One purpose is to redeem. The second purpose is to adopt us as his sons. This is part of the heart of God and part of his plan and this is not the only place this, this analogy of adoption shows up in Romans 8:23. We read this, "For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." There's a future adoption that's coming as well, and we groan for that. We long for the full adoption. Paul says in Romans 9, he wishes that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ so that his brothers, his kinsmen, could be redeemed. He said they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Right, The fact that we are adopted, we get adopted along with the Jewish people. Uh, Ephesians 1.5, just one more passage to talk about this concept of adoption. Ephesians 1 starts like this. 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then what? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Adoption has been God's plan for you. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting him, adoption has been God's plan for you before you ever existed and before there ever was a world. His plan for you was to adopt you as his son. And that language of family is all over our New Testament. It's everywhere, the concept of being sons and God being our father. But how does God become your father? How does it happen? How do you become his son? And the answer is, it's through the doctrine of adoption. So we sang multiple songs today even that that sang about justification. Um, Justification is a crucial truth that we ought to love and appreciate. Justification is the legal declaration that you are righteous, okay? Okay. Right? So it says you are righteous, not on the basis of your merits, but God says you are righteous. What's the difference between justification and adoption? Justification says you are righteous. Adoption says you're mine. Justification is a, is a legal announcement, but adoption is a family connection. Okay? So if, if you want to make the picture in your head, picture the courtroom scene where justification happens. There's God standing in the courthouse and you come to him, and you're a criminal. You are thoroughly guilty, and you stand before him, and your list of offenses are clear. You're guilty. And and God looks out at you, and Jesus says, I will take his place. And God says, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, you're righteous. You criminal, you're righteous. You're justified. There's no sin before me. Well, what happens next is that God comes down from behind that bench and he takes off his robes and he goes over to the family court and he says, I'm not just going to say this criminal is righteous now, I'm going to say you're mine. I want him in my family and I'm going to adopt him as my son. That's the picture of adoption. It's not just justification, it's you're mine. Adoption is a glorious truth that explains why you'd have the language of family in the New Testament, why you and I this morning can be brothers and sisters, because we've been adopted into God's family. We're not just guiltless, we're family members. And let me just say, uh, ladies, don't be bothered that it says uh, that, that you have been adopted as sons. Uh, you say, I wish it said sons and daughters right? Um, actually, you don't. And let me, let me just tell you, you don't want it to say sons and daughters in this passage because there wasn't any kind of adoption into family for daughters. There wasn't an inheritance for women in this day and age. So if the, if the, if the Galatians would have read this verse and it said, um, it said that you can receive the adoption as sons and daughters, they would have gone, wow, I've never heard of this idea. There wasn't an inheritance for ladies. There was nothing for them. Right, all of the, the only inheritance a, a, a woman in this day and age ever got was through her husband, um, and, and that was it. That's part of the reason that it matters so much that, that James says we've got to care for, for widows and orphans. There isn't anything outside of the male in this society. So when when it says you can receive adoption as sons, ladies, that doesn't exclude you. That includes you. Paul just said at the end of chapter 3 that there isn't male or female. In fact, it's New Testament teaching that that, that tells us that, that women are co-heirs of the grace of life. This is revolutionary teaching in their day. So when it says adoption as sons, ladies, that's you too. I realize you, you, know, you probably never looked forward to being adopted as a son, but, but that's what this verse says for you. You can be adopted as God's son because that's where, that's where the blessing of inheritance and, and of what you get in the adoption process, that's where it comes from. It comes through being a son. Okay? So don't let that put you off that it doesn't say sons and daughters. This is for you too. So, God's purpose in sending his son is so that you can be adopted. And notice, we're, we're not done yet with the thrilling truths that come with God sending his son. Notice all of the connected blessings that come. Verse number six, because you are sons. What else has happened because we're sons? What else has happened because God sent forth his son to, to adopt us and make us his? Well, there's all these connected blessings. Because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So just like God sent his son, he's also sent the spirit of his son. So there is a a blessed Holy Spirit that comes to us because God sent his son. And now he sends his spirit because we are now his sons. And his, his spirit is in our hearts and that spirit is crying, Abba, Father. Notice what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's crying out, Abba. The spirit is confirming that we actually are family. And listen, this morning, if you know the guilt of your sin, or if you've ever had doubts in your conscience about your faith, then you know and value the confirming work of the Holy Spirit. We need him in our hearts to keep keep saying, he is my father, I belong to him. I mean, coincidentally, don't adopted children often need reassured that they really do belong to their adopted family? That's what's going on here. There's a spirit in your heart that says, you belong it's Romans eight seventeen. We didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall into fear. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, this word cry out is really interesting. I this word, it says, it says, he sent his son, the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans, it says crying out. This is not just an ordinary word for saying. All right? It's not just we say, Abba, Father, and it's this close family relationship. This word is a powerful word. It is a loud, earnest cry. It is ear-splitting. It is haunting. It is a wail of Father. Parents know the difference when their children are really panicked and needy, don't they? I mean, even even like when your kids are babies, well, I should say parents. In my case, it was more like Kathy knew the difference when our babies, like, they, they're not even saying words. And there was a cry that meant, I actually really do need something. And there was a cry that meant, I just want attention. And I didn't know the difference, but somehow she did. But kids get old enough to say, Daddy. Um, and, and there's a difference when our, cry, when our children are really panicked and really needy, and they wail out. They cry, Daddy, I need you. They're scared. They're afraid. They're, they're panicked. It's an instinctual cry. Kids turn to their own parents when they're really desperate, right? You don't have kids, and they're in the middle of danger, and they go, ah, grandma! Like, not, not typically, right? They want, they want dad, they want mom, right? They don't go, aunt, uncle, friend. If a kid is really panicked, he's going to go, daddy, I need you. That's exactly what the Spirit's doing in your heart. It's this instinctual cry, dad, help me. It's a, it's a whale. And the Spirit does that in our hearts. This is a thrilling truth of the coming of God sending his son, he made us his own, and he gave us this confirming spirit. It's what the spirit provides for us in relation to God. You belong to God. All right, and notice we not just have the son, but we have the inheritance that goes along with it. Verse seven is really a conclusion, both for kind of this sermon, as well as for what Paul's been saying. Paul wraps it all up in verse number seven. What's his conclusion? So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son then you are an heir through God. Paul's countering the legalism of the Galatian church, and he's saying, you don't, you don't become a son through your works. You don't become a son through your efforts. You become a son and an heir through God. It's through his kindness. It's, it's a gift. It's not from works, and it's secure because it's from him. So, so listen, beloved, you, you know what it is to be adopted. Or at least you, you should know. And I think the only reason that we might not feel sympathy with orphans is that we haven't grasped how good the gospel is. Or if our grasp of the gospel is muted and we haven't considered our own condition, maybe we've downplayed how drastically bad our spiritual condition was before Christ. Or how great our need was for adoption And we fail to revel in how wonderful it is to be part of God's family. Because if you know how sweet it is to be part of God's family, then why would your heart not long for that same kind of adoption to be known in this world? How else could we be cold-hearted to the plight of the orphan? We've been there. You know what it's like to be an orphan. You do. You just need to think about it from a gospel perspective. So that brings me to this conclusion I hope you have seen the glory of the gospel in God's adoption for you. You were a slave, and God made you his son. So so, so what? But that's the point of Galatians 4. Well, have you been adopted? Let me, let me start there. Have, have you been adopted? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you say, I, I've never felt that need of my sin, I've never felt like I need someone to rescue me like that. I haven't felt how bad it is to be a slave to sin. I haven't been aware that I've been a slave to sin, but now I'm starting to see it. Then your response to this message this morning can be repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, and he will make you his. Not because of your works and not because of your effort, not because you're in a certain church or with a certain Bible or have a certain family tradition. God will make you his son because he is gracious and kind, and he will pardon your sin if you will trust Jesus and repent and turn to him. This is a good gospel message of adoption. And so if you haven't been adopted by Jesus yet, you need to be. Turn to him. Let Become part of his family, not because of your effort, but because of the work of Jesus. Okay? That's a, that's a what to do with this message. I think you can rejoice, those of you that are sitting here and your heart's been warmed by thinking about the adoption that's yours. We ought to be a a happy people today that we have a good gospel. What else can we do? I want to try to make the connection for you today that we should value human adoption because of what what it reminds us of. If for no other reason, we should be a people that hear the word adoption and that clicks with us because of the illustration that it is for us. Of what's in scripture. What are ways that you can value human adoption? You can support orphanages. Worldwide. Who are making adoptions possible. You can support the American foster system. Which is making adoptions possible. Uh, There's over 400,000 children. In foster care in the U.S. right now. Over 100,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. The average age of a child. Waiting to be adopted. According to the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Is is 7.8 years old. So. You can value human adoption because of what it reminds you of. You can encourage people who are trying to adopt. It can be a long and a hard road to go through the adoption process in today's world. Over the past decade, there's been over 180,000 children around the world in the last 10 years who were adopted. But since 2004, which was the high mark of of intercountry adoption, adoption has dropped by 60%. Because of all of the bureaucracy and all the rules and regulations and the, the wait times that are there now and, and all these things, it's become a longer, harder road to adopt than ever before. So you can encourage people who are trying to adopt. There are families in our own church who have gone through adoption, um, most of it local, I think, but um, some of it global. So you have families like the Bookers and the Youngs and like Diane who have gone through adoption. These, these are people that are resources and helps and reminders for us because every time you see an adopted child, it's a reminder of something that is supernatural and spiritual. You can encourage people because it's expensive to do adoption these days. Uh, the, the average cost, according to the surveys these days, is right around thirty thousand. Uh, it's between twenty and forty domestically. It's over twenty five internationally. The, of the major countries, um, just to l- give you a brief window, of the five major countries where adoption has happened in the last ten years, Korea. $38,000. Ethiopia, $28,000. China, $29,000. Russia was the highest at $50,000, although you may be aware that Russia recently ended its international adoption. You can no longer adopt a child from Russia, but it's expensive, and so you say, I can't, I can't adopt somebody. You can care about adoption, and you can value adoption because of what it reminds you of, or you actually might be able to adopt. You can foster adopt for less than $5,000, You can care about adoption because of the adoption that's happened to you. That's my argument to you today. What drives us to care about orphans, specifically um, one way to care for them is adoption. What ought to drive us is the gospel. Not because it's cool or hip or it's the thing to do, but because the gospel reminds us how sweet it is for us to be adopted. And we want to turn that around. We want to image out God's character. God's heart is to adopt, to, to bring in his family people that weren't a part of his family. And that's you and that's me. So how can we turn that around to others? It's something we need to pray about, we need to consider, we need to act on. It's why we want to move forward in, in some ways. With James 1.27, I realize adoption is just one slice of that, but it's one reason to care about that. It's why we would love to have you at the meeting. It's why we have things in your bulletin, like the upcoming workshop on November 16th over at First Baptist. Um, that's a great workshop because it's not just— um, it's a variety. It's, it's a variety of ministries and of ways to care about fostering and adoption. It's not just local or global or fostering or foster adopting. They're bringing together a whole bunch of different services and organizations to give the church information of ways to move forward. That's why um, these are exciting days for us as a church to say, how can we live out um, what we know to be true from our own gospel principles? So. I hope that you're encouraged this morning in the adoption that's yours, and I hope you have new eyes to hear the word adoption and to look at it um, in our own community, in our own world. You are a slave, but God made you his son.